We're finishing Jonah. I wanted to say a couple of things before we started on chapter four today. I got um, I got a Marco Polo from one of the evening small group leaders and an email from one of the morning small group leaders about um, some cool stuff that's come up in discussion. And so I just want to remind you that everything I'm sharing with you is not from me. It is just things that I have studied and put together. And so if there's a question that comes up, um, I will be happy to point you to the, the original source. Um, there's some really cool discussion. Judy sent a really neat, I got to go back and read that whole email. But that was, I had not even considered the language barrier was the thing that her small group talked about. So, um, all right, so last week, let's recap. We learned about Jonah um, preaching the shortest sermon ever and how the Ninevites repented. And there were 120,000 people that, um, that turned from their evil and they cried out mightily to God for mercy and he gave it. And, um, and while I didn't use this term last week, what we were talking about is God's common grace. Um, he showed mercy to the Ninevites even though there was no evidence that they came to a saving faith in him. Um, he extended his grace by relenting from bringing judgment on them. So um, one writer described common grace as an expression of the goodness of God to an undeserving and sin-cursed world. So if you think about it, God loves to make all sorts of things good. I mean, we have the changing seasons. Um, we need a good rain. I bet we'll get more than we want here before too long. Um, think about he gives skill to artists and, and cooks and farmers to make beautiful things. And not only does his common grace bring good gifts, but he also shows it by sometimes delaying judgment. So in order to lead people to repentance, um, to get a change in behavior, to stop evil. And, and, and ultimately, the, the hope and the goal would be that they would come to know him as Lord. Um, so as we've been looking at Jonah, We've turned the mirror around to look at ourselves to see what in the life of Jonah reveals about our own hearts. But we've also looked at God's heart towards sinners. And we're getting a picture of his compassion and his justice and mercy to the lost and to the saved. And so our, our little rebellious prophet, I shouldn't call him little, our rebellious prophet, Jonah, even though he's been reluctant, he's finally obeyed God and his mission was successful and Nineveh repented, and now let's pick up with Jonah and find out what happened. So let's turn to chapter 4. So God relented, and Jonah was displeased. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could, should see what could become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
and Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. <laughs> and also lots of cows. Let's look at the divided heart of Jonah. That's the first thing that we seem to see here. As my kids would say, Jonah is big mad. Um, and the first thing he does is he fusses at God. I knew this is what you were going to do. That's why I didn't want to go. I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were abounding in steadfast love. I knew you would relent from disaster. Just kill me. He would rather die than live with God loving his enemies. He wants God to have a violent response to the violence of Nineveh. And now that he hasn't gotten his way, Jonah is violently angry. And so when God says, hey, Jonah, do you have, what do you have to be angry about? Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah stonewalls him, and he heads east. I don't know which way east is from here. So from looking at a topographic map, thanks to my husband, topographic is not a word that I use. <laughs> um, east, actually, the, the land actually went up in elevation as you traveled east. And so Jonah was getting himself to a good vantage point, a spot overlooking the city, where he could camp out in his anger and wait for the destruction he wanted. So not only does it seem like he's traveling to a higher elevation, though, it kind of seems like he is also elevating his anger and his pride. He's giving it reign and superiority. Look at the sense of superiority that he shows. So he was just rescued from his own death in the sea, and yet here he is wishing to die. Even though his repentance was half-hearted, his anger now is white hot and consuming. The one thing Jonah has consistently done throughout this book is show his contempt for God. If God forgives Jonah's enemies, then Jonah's sense of entitlement and superiority is invalidated. And Jonah has put a lot of stock in being different and special and deserving of God's mercy. In his mind, there's a competition between him, the Israelites, and the Ninevites. And in order to maintain his sense of self-worth, he needs the Ninevites to be less valuable than him. Um, in 2007, there was a fellow named Justin Rosenstein. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Worked for Google, and he left Google and went to Facebook. And when he got to Facebook, he and his team came up with the idea of creating the like button. You know. And the, their goal was it would create excitement over one another. It would create a community of positivity so that when something made us smile, we could, um, we could like it. <laughs> well, unbeknownst to them, what they did not anticipate is it would actually create a community of competition. Um, it turned social media into a popularity contest. Now, affirmation was quantifiable. 
If I get 100 likes on a post, I feel validated. Oh my goodness, and if I get 100 likes and 80 comments, <laughs> winning. If I don't, I'm depressed. If somebody I'll dislike gets 100 likes and 80 comments, um, then I feel bitter um, and I feel insecure. And I think they don't deserve it. And before you know it, all that kind of stuff starts to control us and we feel pressure. Um, we feel pressure to at least look like we have a really great life. Or maybe as we scroll, 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 we just get lulled to sleep, kind of like Jonah in the bottom of the boat. Um, and we become blind to what is actually controlling us. I'm not, look, I'm not knocking social media. I'm on it. I love it and I hate it at the same time. Um, but my point is that it is too easy to get our loves out of order, for our affections to become disordered. And then before you know it, we become controlled by them. And that's the slippery nature of sin, isn't it? We become lulled to sleep to the things of God, and we become resigned to a position of elevating ourselves, constantly trying to puff ourselves back up because we get deflated so easily. We need constant feeding. And that is sin's tricky tactic. It makes us question God. If you think about the, um, the Garden of Eden, what did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say that? Did God he really say? The enemy of our heart loves to get us to question. He loves it when we question God's goodness or to make us feel sorry for ourselves, like we're being deprived of something good or not getting something we deserve. And before you know it, it lulls us into believing that we actually know what's better, um, that we are being oppressed or we're being treated unfairly by God and that, what, that he isn't actually trustworthy. Um, and then we just start to reverse the authority in our lives, placing our own wants on the throne and what we think is right above him. And so Jonah, this is what he's done. He's identified himself as being right and God as being wrong. And so he builds a shelter because he plans on being there for a while. He's going to go camp out in his anger. He's so entrenched in it that he's building it a house. He's building it a house. And before you know it, he's only going to invite people in who agree with him. And people who don't agree with him don't get to come in. James 1.20 the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This kind of quick-tempered, self-righteous anger cannot change a person's heart in any godly way. It just serves to wall him off from a relationship, and it does the same to us when we camp out in our anger. So what is it exactly that he is so angry about? Tim Keller calls anger, I love this, calls anger love in motion. Isn't that interesting? Because anger is a response to a perceived threat against something you value. All right, think about this. If your kids or grandkids are playing outside and you see a UPS driver, driver, not picking on UPS drivers, if you see a UPS driver driving like a maniac coming down the street, what's the first thing you feel? Talk loud to me because I can't hear. That's not the first thing you feel. The first thing you feel is something along the lines of terror, <laughs> yeah. panic, fear, and then comes you get the kids out of the way, and then comes the anger. Yeah. You get the kids out of the way, and then you want to go kill a UPS driver. Uh-huh. Why? Because his actions threaten something you love. 
So when our loves are disordered, our anger gets misdirected. What do you think the threat was to Jonah that made him so mad? What do you think his anger reveals? He's responding to the scandal of God's grace, like what Tim Mackey calls the dark side of God's grace. Remember, Jonah's message was that Nineveh would be overturned in 40 days. And what he wanted that to mean would be that they would be obliterated. That's what he wanted, and that's what he thought was appropriate. He wanted God to be a weapon of destruction. But the scandal was that God has more grace than any of us, any of the Ninevites, had sin. Brian Habig told this story, and you, you, it will be familiar, I think. You remember um, 2015, Dylan Roof, do you remember that name? Um, in 2015, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white kid, went to a Bible study in African-American church in um, Charleston. He stayed for the whole Bible study, and when it was over, he pulled out a gun and he killed nine people. And they found a manifesto at his house later where he expressed his hatred of Jews and African-Americans and Hispanics and that he had a desire to start a race war. 48 hours later, at his bond hearing, a number of, I read them, a number of family members stood up and offered him forgiveness. It's crazy. 48 hours later. The daughter of one victim said, I forgive you. You took away something precious from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. 48 hours later. A few months later, a journalist for the Washington Post published an article called Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. I want to read a little bit of it to you. I hope you, I can keep you, your attention while I read a little bit of it to you. She said, forgiveness has become a requirement for those enduring the realities of black death in America. Black families are expected to grieve as a public spectacle to offer comfort, redemption, and a pathway to a new day. The parents of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Mike Brown, and the widow of Eric Garner were all asked in interviews if they'd forgive the white men who killed their loved one. After 9-11, there was no talk about forgiving Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden. America declared war, sought blood and revenge, and rushed protective measures into place to prevent future attacks. And she quotes what a writer for the Atlantic Monthly posted on Twitter. Can't remember any campaign to love and forgive in the wake of ISIS beheadings. She says, repeatedly forgiving the people who keep murdering us is a desperate preemptive move to try to prevent more white harm to black persons, and it doesn't necessarily translate to acceptance. And she makes a plea to stop forgiving, she says, because in our forgiveness we perpetuate. It's hard to hear, but it articulates something that we all struggle with. Is there someone, some group of people, some kind of sin that infuriates you so much that you become unable to see yourself as a fellow sinner with them. That makes you so angry that you think it's wrong for them to be forgiven. I work every day with people who've been victimized. And this is something we wrestle with. We wrestle with justice. How can God be just and merciful at the same time? How can God have compassion and then call us to do the same? This is hard work. Jonah was angry because he believed that the Ninevites should be outside the scope of God's mercy, but they weren't. And that sends Jonah to a deep despair. 
So, how can we explain Jonah's unstable moods, his mood swings? I think the answer is partly in James 1.8, where he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Keller said the problem with Jonah is that he believed and served Yahweh and he believed and served a rival God. And this creates intense emotional instability for us. Jonah looked to something besides God, more than God, to find his meaning and purpose. And so his idol seems to be his security and his identity as a member of the nation of Israel. And he loves his people and his identity so much, but his love has been distorted to the point that he believed that he should have exclusive rights to God's mercy. John Thomas Cranmer, who was a, an Archbishop of Canterbury in the 16th century, he said, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Jonah is so hardened and devoted to his way of thinking. He's so committed to his anger that he even uses God's word against him. I knew that you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. He's angry about it. He's using the Bible to justify it. And he's overwhelmed with despair because he's getting the exact opposite of what he thinks he deserves. He wants God to serve his will. And he omits the last part of, of verse 7, that's from Exodus 34, that says that God will by no means clear the guilty. He omits that part. See, we're worshipers by nature. Y'all know that, right? We're hardwired to worship. Um, we're hardwired to respect, honor, esteem, or follow. There's no such thing as not worshiping. We're never not worshiping. What do you look for for meaning in your life? Like, do you ever experience the kind of despair that Jonah felt? That might give you some insight into what you're worshiping. I do, y'all, and I could, I'll, tell, I'll be glad to tell you if you want to ask me later. Um, think about what in your life, if it's threatened, or taken away from you would make you so violently angry or go to such a place of despair, that might be something that you're worshiping. Is it having enough money, financial security? Is it being well-liked? Is it being beautiful or respected? We all worship something because it's a default setting with us, within us. And as Keller said, the only thing that releases us from the grip of idols is a heart grasp of the radical grace of God. That's it. Listen to Mark 8, 23 through 25. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight restored, was, restored, was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You know, like the blind man, Jonah needs multiple exposures to the compassionate hand of God. And we do too, don't we? And it often comes through struggle and disappointment and failure. Sinclair Ferguson, Jonah was caught between the vice of his self-will on the one hand and the strong hand of God on the other. The more he um, pushed the more God pressed. Most of us are like that. Or like Peter, we talked about last time. Um, most of us need multiple exposures to understand God's grace over and over and over and over and over. And at the time, it, it, oftentimes it comes by way of disappointment. Paul Tripp said, God will take you where you had not intended to go to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And so because Jonah is like us, he's confused and stubborn and impatient. 
God uses these object lessons. He sends a plant, and Jonah is very happy because the plant gives better shade than the dry wood house he built. He thought, finally, something in my life is going right. Interesting, the only time he's happy is when it's just about him. Uh, but then a worm eats the plant, and it withers, and he wants to die again. Think about the vine. The vine was a gift of deliverance, wasn't it? It was a shelter from the heat of the sun. It was a relief and a source of happiness. The worm, well, it caused Jonah to lose the vine, and then he would have to endure the elements while he lived in his angry house. And so the sun smacked him around and, and, and bore down on his head. I wonder if he was bald. I don't know. Um, and, and the wind blew the hot sand, probably smacking him in the face. If you've ever had that feeling at the beach, it's painful. It probably hurt. It made him even more distressed. Probably made him even more angry. Here's what Matthew Henry said. I love this. Persons of strong passions are apt to be cast down with any trifle that crosses them or to be lifted up with any trifle that pleases him. We who are prone to complain never run out of things to be upset about. <laughs> Calling me out. How much time do we spend thinking about what we deserve? When something goes wrong, how quick are you to think that God has let you down? When something happened with our car recently and we were driving back from dropping one off, we have so many things that have happened with our cars. And I said, why does this stuff keep happening? Pete said something super wise. I don't, I don't remember what it was. <laughs> why does it, it feels like, like God, what, what is your deal? <laughs> the blessing of the vine and the tiny worm and the harsh wind and the sun, those are all God lovingly pursuing Jonah. There's no part of us, no experience of us, no thought, no emotion that is outside of God's awareness. And remember, y'all, he's not surprised or anxious. We can take every anxious, fearful, angry thought to our Father, and he meets us, just like he meets Jonah, with compassion, the compassionate heart of God. Jonah had returned to the same angry opposition that we saw in chapter 1. And instead of running, he's camping out in it. This time, God doesn't send a raging storm or a giant fish. He just begins to speak gently. Jonah, is it right for you to have this much anger? Is it good for you to burn with this anger? We tend to think that once we become Christians that we should be shiny, happy rainbows all the time. Rainbows, glitter, sparkles. In tune with God's will and content with whatever he brings our way. We can take comfort to use Jonah's language. We can be exceedingly comforted to use Jonah's language, that God knows the totality of the human heart and it does not exhaust his love and it does not exhaust his patience. And he continues to take his rebellious child, these us rebellious children, by the hand. Oh, let me look back. Let's, let's pick it up one more time. <clears throat> Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You know, we can do good things for people. We can let somebody merge into traffic. Um, we can take somebody a meal. We can even give a word of encouragement and not even like the person. 
Those things are behavior. Those things are an act of the will. The word that God uses here, compassion, that means that he is grieved over something. It means to have your heart broken over something, to weep over it. God points out Jonah's grief over the plant to show him how confused he is. God's grief is for his people. Genesis 6, 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Isaiah 63, 8 and 9, and he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. God needs nothing. He's entirely self-sufficient, and yet he attaches himself to his sinful people voluntarily in love. This is what makes it possible for him to speak of the evil pagans as people who do not know their right hand from their left. There's no excuse for what they've done, but out of God's great compassion, he is grieved over it. He sees their lostness. He sees how misguided they are. So when people hurt or offend you, do you think your heart looks more like Jonah's or do you think it more looks more like a compassionate God? Are you more inclined to want revenge or want them to be punished? Or I have, I have felt this before, want someone to be outed. You know, like I want people to know who they really are. <laughs> do you build walls around you to house your anger? God's call, his heart, is of compassion, and that's hard for us sometimes, and it takes repeated exposures to get it. Jonah could not remain boxed in, perched above Nineveh, and God did not stay perched above us. He came to us in Jesus, and he walked among us, and he died for us. The Bible records Jesus weeping 20 times for every one time it says he laughed. On the cross, he cried out to the Father about the people who were mocking him. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. Ephesians 5, because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In his compassion, God calls to Jonah, and he pursues him diligently, patiently, and he doesn't leave him in his self-pity or anger. In his great love, he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for us so that we're not left in our anger either. His compassion and his love is always the cause of our repentance. Our repentance is not the cause of his love. Do y'all get that? He acts He first, he acts first, and he meets us wherever we are. Okay, and finally, what about the weird ending? The last word is literally, and some cows. (laughs) Why? What's the deal? Was Jonah a lost cause? Do we know what happened? Why is it left open like that? Well, think about it. The only way we know this story is because Jonah told it. Only because... He had been changed by the felt experience of God's grace. Was he able to tell this humiliating story about himself? The book of Jonah is left open-ended, maybe as an invitation for us to consider. God is both just and merciful. Next week, we're going to Nahum, and we're going to see his justice really clearly. 
The book of Jonah is a clear display of God's heart of mercy. And the Ninevites needed grace, and so did Jonah, and so do we. God, the, the, the story of Jonah, it teaches that God has mercy for sinners and mockers and the arrogant and the, and the misguided and the despised, and we can root our identity in trusting his goodness. So because of his mercy, we can look at the world with compassion. Because of his mercy, we can resist the temptation to rely on our pursuit of God, but rest in knowing that he pursues us. And when our hearts are unstable and we're full of pride and we want to feel self-justified, we can constantly be reminded that salvation comes from the Lord. Thank y'all for letting me walk through this book with y'all. Let's pray and then we'll go to small group. Father, I know that there are places in our lives that where we struggle to reconcile how you can be just and merciful, how you can have compassion, and we wrestle with wanting to feel justified in our anger and also wanting to be like you. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word and we meet with small groups and we, and we hash it out with one another, Lord, that we might be changed to have a compassionate heart like you. Lord, that we might serve you and love others in a way that reflects your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.